Uh, I'm going to start by asking you a question. Did you know? Did you know that you can waste your sorrows? You can waste your sorrows. It's true. You can go through hard times in life that are immensely difficult and waste that time. But on the flip side of that, if that's true, that also means then that you can benefit. You can reap from your sorrows. You can benefit. Bear fruit. I'm going to show you today. We're reading Psalm 126. We're continuing in our series on the Psalms, and the Bible here is teaching us that joy doesn't just follow times of sorrow, but joy is actually produced by the sorrow. And there's a difference.、Um, and so, what's going to happen today is I'm going to read the Psalm.、Uh, just going to give you some context as to what it is. We're going to go through it. We're going to see how Jesus fulfills it. And then how we respond off the back of that. So,、uh, before I read Psalm one twenty six, let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning that we can open your Word. Thank you that as we open it, we know you're speaking to us, and that you can change us. Father, I pray that you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand how wonderful the gospel is. And pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me read Psalm one twenty six. It says, "A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, 'The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev.'" Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So, just some context. You'll notice、uh, if you look at that psalm, the first thing you see at the kind of the top line is a song of ascents. Uh, what is that? So, a song of ascent—it's—it's it's a group of fifteen、uh, psalms、uh, grouped together. And the idea is the ascent. When it's talking about the ascent, that's going up to the temple in Jerusalem. So, a song of ascent is psalms that the Jews would have said as they were going up to the temple、uh, in Jerusalem. Now, why is that significant? Just before we dive in, it's significant because this is a psalm then that people have, will have said. A lot. It's not long. It's six verses long,、um, and they would have had that on their minds. You know how sometimes there are songs these days, like songs we sing this morning, that kind of you can recall the lyrics of off the top of your head. It's it's very similar to this, a, a song of ascent. And it, the reason that's significant is because this is a psalm that is talking about sorrow. Psalm one twenty six. We don't actually know who wrote Psalm one twenty six. It's talking about sorrow.、Uh, Not everyone in life at the moment is going through sorrow. Some people are, some people aren't, right? But the wonderful thing is, is that when you can have a song playing again in your head, when you come to the sorrow, when the sorrow comes, what happens? That song or this psalm can pop into your head, and it can help you in that time. Does that make sense? So if you're not going through sorrow this morning, don't just kind of brush this aside and think, "Oh, that's not for me. That this isn't what I'm going through at the moment," because this is something that we need to keep playing over and over in our heads. Uh, to kind of get stuck in, 
Hopefully then when that time of sorrow comes, you're kind of falling back into the safety net of the Psalm, Psalm 126 as opposed to just hitting, hitting the ground straight down. So I've got a slide um, that is going to... Next one. Sweet. It's a bit small, my bad. Um, but this is the structure of the psalm, okay? It's pretty straightforward, and you can spot uh, how it's structured based on the tense, uh, the, the way that the psalmist is speaking. The first three verses, he's focusing on the past. And if we read verse 1, it says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. So he is uh, recalling, he's looking back at a period of fortune, a period of blessing in the lives of Israel. What are the fortunes of Zion? It's important to note Zion here. Zion is used in two different ways in the Bible. Zion is used, one, to describe Jerusalem itself, the city of Zion, but Zion is also used to describe uh, the people of Israel. And there are times in the the Old Testament and the New Testament that the the verse will talk about Zion as the people. But both to note, uh, Zion is, is the place where God is. And and so what are the fortunes of Zion? Uh, Moses taught on this. Moses taught on this in Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'm just going to read you a verse from that. Moses saying, Then the Lord your God will make you most prosperous in all the work of your hands and in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your land. So the fortunes here, when he's saying the fortunes of Zion and he's looking back, what is he talking about? He's talking about uh, physical blessing. As Moses here, the, the prosperous in the work of your hands, the fruit of your womb, the crops, all that kind of stuff. It's a physical blessing he's looking back on. And it's amazing, isn't it, that, that language, we were like those who dream. He's kind of describing it as this, how good it was, was this like dreamland, this, uh, this cloud nine experience of like, this is just the best it gets. This previous fortune they had had been given to them by the Lord because it says the Lord restored it. So they didn't earn the fortune. The Lord provided the fortune. And what is it? How do, how do they respond then? Verse 2 and 3. It says, Their mouths were filled with laughter and uh, their tongues with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them and the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. And so I just wanted you to, to kind of think back. There are times in your life that you go through uh, seasons of blessing, seasons of blessing. And, and we can look back, as the psalmist does here, and remember how, how wonderful that was. And I think the lesson here to learn is, is that we can look back on previous blessing, previous fortunes, and take confidence today that he, that he can do it again. So when we're going through sorrow, we can look back at previous blessing, which allows us to have confidence and hope today. And another thing to note from just the first three verses here, and this is probably going to seem obvious, um, is that we should enjoy times of blessing. They come and they go. And if you're in a time of blessing, in whatever way that is, uh, enjoy it. Enjoy it. Because you notice here how the, the Israelites responded. How did they respond? They didn't, in a time of blessing, look inward, but they actually looked upward, didn't they? The, the, the first thing it says, we're like those who dream, and our mouths were filled with laughter, and our tongues were shouts of joy, and we said, the Lord has done great things for us. 
And so we can just remember in those times of blessings that we can always go back and remember it's the Lord that provides it. We can be thankful. And in turn, of course, that, is a, that, that blessing that the Israelites steward well is a, is a witness to the, to the nations around as well. Fast forward to today. Fast forward to today. Uh, the psalmist is speaking verses four to six. What's happening? What's happening? Uh, verse four, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The psalmist is praying now. The psalmist is praying, asking the Lord to restore the fortunes of Zion. What does that mean? That means they don't have the fortunes anymore. They did, they now don't. And it's interesting, isn't it? It's the Lord that's doing it. Uh, One of the things that uh, a commentator pointed out, which is very interesting, is that there's no indication in Psalm 26 that the people were living in sin and that the Lord had removed the blessings because of their sin. There's no indication of that. It just says that the Lord has, uh, has taken it away. That's it. And it's not always that the Lord brings sorrows upon us because of something that we're doing. It's not that the Israelites are unlucky here. It's actually something that the Lord is doing. And so the people's laughter and song has been turned into to prayer and weeping. The prayer in verse 4 is, Restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. What is the Negev or the Negev? Uh, it's a desert, actually. It's a desert in southern Israel. Um, and so how is the psalmist thinking? What's he feeling right now? He's feeling that his life is a little bit like a desert. Dry, desolate, barren, dull. And he feels that there's just no blessing at all. And he prays for the Lord to do what? To bring uh, streams in the Negev. It's interesting. I, I don't know if this is a particularly important detail, but that desert in southern Israel, um, when it would rain, it would cause streams to flow through the desert. And where the streams uh, was flowing, there actually grew up like wildlife, green, green plants and stuff in the desert. And you can Google that picture if you don't believe me. And... Uh, and so that's what, you can imagine, that's what he's thinking, right? My life is like a barren rock. And the Lord, please, can you provide streams to cause there to be growth and to restore what we once had? And there's more imagery in the passage as well. Uh, verse, verses 5 and 6. Let me read verses 5 and 6 again. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. What's this about? Uh, why are they weeping? It's not because they hate farming, okay? Um, because no one in their right mind would hate farming. <laughs> um, and I know, and I read this, and I thought, I know who I'm going to be speaking to, and I feel underqualified to talk about farming <laughs> to some of the people in this room. Um, all I know about farming is what I've learned from uh, Clarkson's farm, which I'm aware is not the best technique. So I did take comfort, however, in realizing uh, this, the, the metaphor is not uh, specifically about farming technique, thankfully. It's about, uh, it's an image, it's a farming image of times that we go through. It's a farming image that the psalmist is using to explain things that we go through in life. Not that you don't have to be a farmer to understand this as I am. So, in the context of the passage, 
Why are they weeping then? Why are they weeping? Because they've lost their fortunes. And you have to remember, just remember what I said earlier as well. The fortune is what? It's, it's physical abundance. It's blessing from the Lord. It's good crops and harvest and such, such as. And it seems like a fruitless task then for the Israelites to go out and sow seed in a time when nothing's growing, like it's like a desert. And it's the Lord, remember, that's not allowing those, that, that fruit to grow. And so it's, they must be devastated. And yet, what are they doing? What are they doing here that's really interesting? They are sowing seed anyway in faith. So they are in the, the midst of time like a desert. They are still going out in faith, sowing seed, praying, trusting that the Lord will provide they are waiting to be filled with joy. It hasn't, it hasn't happened yet. And if you're in a time of sorrow like they were, uh, it's really tough. It's not fun at all. Um, and I find that sorrows in my own life test me in ways that I'm often not prepared for. Often kind of hit me like a sledgehammer. I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. I'm going to share an example um, of my own life in the last two weeks, of something that's been tricky that's happened, difficult. Um, I'm not saying this, by the way, to make my life seem worse than yours, or that my sorrows or difficulties are somehow the worst. It's not. This is actually, actually not that big a deal compared to what some people go through, but it's an example that I've had in my life recently that this psalm really helped me with. So I'm going to share. Uh, most of you know that Charlotte and I are we're looking for a house because of uh, stuff that's happening at Cape and Ray. Um, and there was this house for sale in Cape and And uh, it was like a week ago, we went and looked at it. And it was absolutely fantastic. Um, we absolutely loved it. And we kind of thought to ourselves, like, oh, future home. Um, and the only issue was it was like a little, bit, uh, a little bit more than what we could afford. So we thought, well, we can't afford that. But what we can do, and we were praying about it, is we can offer what we can and just see if they take it or not, right? At the same time, uh, literally, I think the, the next day, we get an email from the estate agent saying, oh, the price has been reduced, and the price had been reduced to exactly what we said we were going to offer. So it was like, whoa, like this, <laughs> it was crazy. And we just got so excited um, that, you know, it was an answer to prayer and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so then we did a second view, and we went and saw the people that lived there. Just happened to be a, another young Christian couple, which was great. And we were talking to them, and they said they'd been praying about reducing the price. And so we were like, "Oh wow, this is amazing! Like all of this stuff is coming together." Um, it really was. It was amazing, and you kind of feel that sense of like anticipation and excitement. Um, and so uh, we put an offer in, and uh, they didn't take it. <laughs> they went with someone else. And it was like, oh. Man, I felt like uh, just gutted. Like, you know, you've been building this whole story in your head of like, this is our future home, and then boom, door shut in your face. Uh, I, I remember on Friday, it happened on Friday, it was like, ah, oh, this just is awful. Uh, and it was funny, the, oh, yeah, the response that I had in that midst of that kind of disappointment uh, was pretty awful, to be honest. I, uh, I first of all became very angry, and was like, oh, how dare they? How dare we? Why has God not given us this? Yada, 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 yada. I became 
then I went from that phase to a phase of like discontent and being like, oh, we're never going to get anywhere. And then I went to a phase of being ungrateful and like, oh, why do we have that? And it was, um, it was bad. Um, and it was funny because I was preparing to teach Psalm 126. <laughs> and I forgot what I was, you know, what the psalm is about. I forgot what the psalm is about, that we can sow in sorrow and go through life being faithful, sowing in sorrow, and what can it do? It can reap joy. It can reap joy. The point that the psalmist is making here is that any situation in your life can produce in you joy. Not in the moment, and I'm not saying that like in the midst of sorrow we should all be feeling happy. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the things that we go through in life, they can bear the fruit of joy, long-term. Verse 5 and 6, notice the word it uses. It says, they will, they will, they shall reap, they will reap with joy. It's not could, or could possibly, or might, it's will. It's a certainty which gives us hope. This is, this is an important idea in the Christian life, that if in the midst of sorrow you are faithful that can reap joy long-term. Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of someone bringing sorrow, joy out of sorrow. The ultimate example. Um, and just before I go into this, this is a little bit of a side note. Um, I remember when I was younger and I would used, used to listen to sermons, and they were kind of like, the preacher would get to the Jesus bit. I remember I would be thinking to myself, like, well, they kind of have to say that because you have to say that Jesus died and that he rose again and that you can live in him and, and all that kind of stuff. They have to say that because it's a sermon about Jesus, right? And I remember I would sometimes, like, switch off a bit and be like, oh, I, I know this bit, you know. And, uh, and I remember that was, a, that was a terrible mistake mindset that I made because, in all honesty, if you don't understand how Jesus went through the ultimate sorrow and reaped the ultimate joy, you will not understand this in your life at all. And the fruit of this passage will not show in your life if you don't understand this. Um, the bit, this bit about how Jesus fulfills this, this is the bit that changes you long-term. It's, it's not the application afterwards that makes the difference. It's the, how Jesus fulfills it makes the difference. And everything flows out of that. Um, it is by fixing our eyes on Jesus that we are transformed. Not we transform ourselves, which helps us to fix our eyes on Jesus. And that's a big difference. And so Jesus is the ultimate example of someone bringing joy out of sorrow. Uh, we get told that the night before Jesus went to the cross, he was overwhelmed with sorrow. He was overwhelmed. He was weeping with sorrow. And then what happened the next day? Jesus was murdered on the cross and he, was, he was, felt the wrath of God upon him. And it was because of us. It was because of our sin. We couldn't save ourselves. I think that Jesus going to the cross to pay the penalty for the sin of the world was the most sorrowful thing anyone has ever done. And no sorrow that we ever go through will match that. And yet, why did he do it then? He chose to do it. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. And he wants to save us. He wants to give us life and heal our hearts. 
And yet Psalm 126 goes on and doesn't say, those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. What happened three days later? He rose. He rose. And with a shout of joy, he was resurrected. I, I love that. Uh, the second verse in, oh, praise the name, when it says the angels, you know, uh, the angels roar for Christ the King. The moment he rose, the ultimate joy in heaven and on earth is as we, as Jesus defeats death. And so he reaped the ultimate joy. He reaped the ultimate joy of eternal life that he now offers us. Uh, He says to us, I've gone through the ultimate sorrow in your place so that you can have the ultimate joy in mine. He says to us, I've gone through the sorrow you deserved so that you may have the joy I deserved. You have to remember, it's, it's interesting to think, isn't it? If Jesus didn't die we wouldn't have the joy of eternal life. He had to go through the sorrow. He had to go through the sorrow for that joy to be produced. And he, and he sorrowed perfectly, didn't he? He could have been bitter. He could have blamed others. He could have felt sorry for himself. How did Jesus suffer? He allowed that suffering to drive him to the Father. What was he doing right before his death? He was praying. He was praying. And he, what did he say to the Lord? He said, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus went through the ultimate sorrow and he allowed that sorrow to drive him deeper into the Father. If we fix our eyes on Jesus, if we look to him, then this can be true of us too. I'm going to read a, it's a long quote from Tim Keller. I'll go up on the screen if it's big enough, kind of, maybe not. Um, and I, I was going to paraphrase it and I thought he just says it really, really well, so I'm just going to read it. And he says, now when I see him, this is about Jesus, when I see him dying so that I could live, when I see him going through all this incredible grief and sorrow so he could bring joy to the world, that enables me to sorrow in a far better way. Why? Well, first of all, when I think of him suffering for me, I won't suffer in guilt. I won't sit there and say, well, maybe I'm suffering because God is punishing me. No, 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 no. Jesus took my punishment. Secondly, when I'm suffering, I won't suffer in self-pity and anger. I won't say, how dare God let this happen to me? I'll say, wait a minute. God suffered more than I did so that I can someday live with him forever. And that gets over your self-pity and your anger. And then, of course, thirdly, when I see him suffering for me, I can suffer in patience. Because I say, look, his disciples did not understand what was going on when he went to the cross. They said, what could God ever bring good out of this? And yet God did, of course. So when I see him suffering for me, it makes me patient. It gets rid of my anger and self-pity. It also gets rid of any sense that I might have of guilt. And you know what happens then? Then I just become patient leaning on him, humbling myself. And when it's over, the sorrow creates a new Christ-likeness in me, an ability to depend on God and not on my circumstances. We can wait in sorrows well because of Jesus, only because of Jesus. And when you're sorrowing poorly, like I did on Friday, when that's not going well, it's not because I'm not trying hard enough to sorrow well. It's because I'm not believing the gospel. 
And I didn't look to Christ. And I went to about 15 other things before I thought maybe I should pray and take this to the Lord. Why does God wait? Why does he let us go through sorrow? It's an important question to ask. And if you're going through sorrows, it's not a bad question to ask why. There are lessons that God can only teach us through suffering. There are lessons God can only teach us through suffering. We saw this in Romans. We can have confidence knowing that God is working for our good, and he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God wants us to know him. He wants us to experience the depths of his love and his wonder and joy. And he allows, he allows sorrows to cause that to happen. You see this in the New Testament. I'm not making this up. You see this in the New Testament. How was the early church often treated? Persecution, right? They went through some tough, sorrowful times. And they weren't immediately delivered. They weren't immediately delivered from it either. Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to how Paul explains why he's going through sorrows. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened, and this is the important bit, this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. It's funny, do, do we sorrow well? Because I find so often I'm just like in a tough time in whatever it is, and I just want to like speed on through it and just like, let's just get this over with so I can go back to being happy. And maybe what I'm not realizing is, is that it's the, the process that draws me deeper into Christ. It's the process. And it's not just the end we want, but we want what? We want Christ in the midst of the suffering because it's that which leads us to greater depend on the Lord. We all know this, and this makes sense when you think about it. Uh, when life is going well, what do you tend to do? You tend to start coasting and stop depending. You tend to start coasting and stop depending. And what is it that drives us into deeper dependence on the Lord? It's tough times, right? It's when you realize, oh no, I really do need him. So don't, we don't just want to rush out of sorrow. Um, there is an analogy. Uh, my, my parents had bought a house in Afton. It was kind of a bit dingy. Um, and so the, they're in the, in the process of restoring it. Um, and you'd think restoration, oh, they're building loads of new stuff. No, what are they doing? They are smashing that place to pieces. You know, and they go into the garden. And I know Ian's helped out as well. And they go into the garden. And what are they doing? They're not planting new stuff. They're ripping all the extra stuff out, right? They're trying to clear it up. And that's our life too, is that the Lord, if he wants to bring us lasting joy, and in the case of the house, like a lasting, healthy house, what does he often have to do? He has to rip stuff out. He doesn't have to put new stuff in. He needs to rip it out. Dane Ortland says this, and I've got this quote up there as well. Dane Ortland says this, and uh, he says it in his book, Deeper. Side note, fantastic book, Deeper. He talks, it's, it's, the subtitle is Real, um, Real, uh, oh shoot, I've forgotten it now. But it's, it's about 
going deeper into the heart of Christ and how that happens. Phenomenal book. This is a quote from chapter 7 in it. Um, I would recommend you go and read, if you can, get hands on a copy, read chapter 7 of Deeper, where he talks about how pain draws us deeper to Jesus, because he words it really, really well. This is part of it. He says, perhaps it would be worth reflecting briefly on tears, salutary effect in our lives. Our tears do not hinder growth. Our tears accelerate and deepen growth. That isn't always true, of course. We can let our tears sour us rather than sweeten us. But tears often simply reflect the removal of distraction. We are finally getting in touch with reality and with ourselves. We see more who we really are in all our vileness. We see more deeply who Jesus Christ is in all his tenderness. So we need to sorrow in dependence of Jesus, find Christ in the midst of sorrows. And that can lead us to experience him in a far, far, far deeper way than ever before. Knowing the joy of Christ, why is this worth it? Knowing the joy of Christ is permanent. That doesn't get taken away. Happy times, good circumstances, relying on your life to be all good and happy, that can go like that. Don't rely on that. Rely on Christ. And if you're listening this morning and you don't know Jesus, you don't follow him, I'm telling you this morning, you can go to someone that no matter what happens is working for your good. You go to him in dependence, repentance and faith and he can change your life, transform your life through his spirit to lead to lasting joy. Let me read from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so, just to conclude, should you go away today, should you go away today and think to yourself, I need to try harder at sorrowing well? No, 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 no. I once heard a preacher say, uh, your greatest challenge isn't your discipline, your greatest challenge isn't your devotion, your focus, your greatest challenge is believing the gospel. It's true. Go into the gospel to help you sorrow well. Who doesn't need that? Who doesn't need Jesus in the midst of that? We can find confidence in previous work to give hope in the present sorrow that one day Jesus will use it to produce joy. Ray Altman says this, he says, deep sorrows deepen us. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning that we can open your word and we can be amazed at how Jesus went through real, immense, ultimate sorrow on our behalf so that we can have everlasting joy and life with you. In the times, Father, that we forget that, give us your grace to remember it. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.